Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House. Bug House number eight was recorded live on Monday, May 7th, and featured Don Hall, Joe James, Elizabeth Thierry, Lindsay Williams, John Kapal, and Rory Zacker. Last year, David did, but by the way, this is David Kimmel. He is the co-editor of LiterateAid.com. I am Don Hall. I am the co-editor of LiterateAid.com. We got together, we started talking about it, and we got to a fight. We got to an argument about something that was stupid. I don't even know. But as we started arguing about it, we realized like so much of social media and so much of the discourse of today, we sounded like two eighth grade girls calling each other names. No, I'm right, fuck you, piece of shit, bitch. That was all him. That's a quote. That is, that is a total quote from David. And we got the line, but we realized that all of our discourse lately, like in the land, Trump wasn't the first. He wasn't the first, but he was the first presidential candidate to just use, like, fourth grade yeah. insults to become president. I mean, that's the craziest thing. It's a sort of lying Hillary. What the fuck is that? And so we went, what's wrong with us? Because it's not him, it's us. So what's wrong with us? And we realized we don't know how to argue anymore. We don't know how to have a, a civil conversation about things we disagree with anymore because everything is the moral high ground versus the moral high ground, which is eighth grade because everything's so big. So, we went back in time. We went back in time in 1911 here in Chicago in Washington Square Park. It was dubbed at Bug House Square, which was pejorative for mental hospitals, Bug House. And the reason they called it Bug House Square was because it was a, a time, which we can probably be familiar with, with great political discourse, great divides, great promoting a lot of argument. And what they would do in Washington Square Park is they would bring their soap boxes, which were boxes that they actually transported and sold soap in, and they would stand on them. And you would have radicals and free thinkers and, and socialists and anarchists and communists and artists, and they would stand and they would argue against each other in the square. And great crowds would gather, and, and that was, you know, that was what they did. And we thought, you know. Buckhouse Square, Studs Turkle came from Buckhouse Square. He revived it in the 50s and the 60s. And it's still today they had Buckhouse Square debates out in Newberry Park. And we thought, you know, maybe it's just that we don't know how to argue anymore. So maybe we should create a show. A lot of live lit shows that, that have voting will have the audience vote. And that's democracy. But we don't live in a fucking democracy. So we don't do that here, by God. Some have teams of judges. Like, we posted them off for five years. Teams of judges, and that's representative democracy. But we don't live in a fucking representative democracy. We live in an oligarchy. And so what we do at Bug House is we evoke the lesser-known 2008 Kevin Costner vehicle swing vote rule. And we have one judge who decides each round. Our one judge tonight, randomly chosen, is Sophie. Give Sophie a hand. <laughs> Sophie will determine the winner of each round. She does not have to explain herself. She certainly can, but she does not have to. She's simply going to choose. So the question at hand is, is America now a nation of victims or a nation of heroes? And what's your card? Ten. So, oh, ten. Ten is, okay. So you get the high card. Would you like to go first or second? Second, please. You are going to go second. That is the way it always yeah, works. And I sit here and watch you. You can sit there and watch me. Yes, you can. 
There's the story of the alcoholic father with two sons. One follows in his father's footsteps and ends up struggling through life as a drunk. And the other becomes a successful, sober businessman. Each are asks, why are you the way you are? The answer for both is the same. Well, it's because my father was an alcoholic. The same event, the same childhood, two different outcomes. This is true for almost all situations. What happens to us is an objective reality. How we respond is a subjective choice. When I teach my storytelling masterclass, one of the most controversial points is my admonition that if your story can choose either the victim or the hero, rework your story. Some people really hate that. The only stories they have to tell are how victimized they have been in their lives or how heroic they have been overcoming the victimization they have endured. Jump cut to the current live lit scene. A solid 60% of every storytelling night on tap is a 10-person therapy circle jerk. <laughs> 10, 10, 10 to 12 minute stories of how shitty it has been to be me. How hard it has been to be marginalized or to realize my personal pace of shame and the marginalization or how heroic I am for not marginalizing someone else. A litany of nonstop victims and heroes. And those who have been most ignored from those mostly white, mostly male stages are stepping up and demanding their spotlight time. And some of this is to be expected. When you felt left out, left behind, actively blocked from expressing your own experiences, the need to get up and bark out how hard your life has been seems somewhat appropriate. When the door's been shut to your voice for so long, not quite so long enough if you're in your 20s. But let's not quibble. <laughs> Smashing that door down takes energy and anger plus self-involvement generates a lot of energy. It's not what happens to you but how you react to it that matters. To be certain, there are a fair share of those out there doing the good work, heroic work. From the David Hogs to the day to the whistleblowers of corporate crime to my mother who runs a food bank in the middle of trickle-down economics playground Kansas. <laughs> America has her heroes, but far more of us are not heroic. The balance between the victimized and the branding of victimization, the sheer totality of the Olympiad of victim status is on the side of those who gain the most by complaining. Racial justice? Yes. Identity politics? The American Disabilities Act? Undoubtedly. But emotional support animals? Charges of cultural appropriation for selling California rolls? It isn't just the leftist army of identity fetishists either. White nationalists blog about how goddamn depressed they feel. White men are afraid of the Me Too movement. Cops feel picked on. When was the exact moment we became an entire society of angry bellyachers? Admit it. I mean, it, it, was like, it had to be before the interwebs. Although Facebook and Twitter and guest blogs and the constant drumbeat of my life is so fucking hard, it's just a little more inescapable now. But tomorrow, as you squat down in front of your ridiculously expensive computer or mobile device, you're wondering why your life, your life sucks so hard as you sit from a cup of coffee or tea in your apartment slash house slash domestic dwelling before you hop into your heated water shower with your shower gel with a hint of mint to make the junk tingly and fill your gaping mouth with a muffin made from the blood and sweat of migrant workers. When did it start? Back in 1993. The misanthropic art critic Robert Hughes published a grumpy, entertaining book called Culture of Complaint, in which he predicted that America was doomed to become an increasingly infantilized culture of victimhood. It was a rant against what he saw as a grievance industry, appearing all across the political spectrum. It was funny, and it was interesting. But 25 years later, the question is, was he right? In 2017, a Massachusetts preschool banned children from using the term best friend. Parent Christine Hartwell said she learned about the ban from her four-year-old daughter who's come home, who'd come home sad from her day. School officials explained that best friend, quote, even when used in a loving way, can lead other children to feel excluded, unquote. 
In 2016, Abigail Fisher sued the University of Texas because she applied to the university and was denied admission. Quote, there were people in my class with lower grades who weren't in all the activities I was in who were being accepted into UT, and the only difference was because it's the color of our skin, she said. I was taught from the time I was a little girl that any kind of discrimination is wrong. And for an institution of higher learning to act this way makes no sense to me. What kind of example does it set for others? Unquote. Last week, Syracuse was rattled by the release of two horrifying videos that appear to capture members of an engineering frat taking an oath to hate the N-word, the S-P-I-C-S word. I don't know how you say that without saying it, so that's how I said it. And the most importantly, fucking kites. We can do that, this Himmel's Jewish. Um, and mocking a disabled person's light rape, the school responded by expelling the frat, suspending 18 of its members, and now five of them are suing the school for injury to their reputation. I'm not immune to it. Never in the history of mankind has there been a more wounded, bitching shithead when it comes to divorces and past relationship failures and John jobs gone by the wayside than Don Hall. <laughs> I still catch myself getting pissy about that one time a group of assholes that decided to troll me online. When I even I get tired of my slightly bitter woe is me bullshit, I can only imagine how fucking long-suffering my wife is to endure it. But it isn't just an individual thing, is it? All of America, from sea to motherfucking shining, oil-polluted, used condom-filled sea, is obsessed with bitching about how hard their lives are. People with body issues, young mothers, college students with massive debt and no jobs, dudes who feel emasculated, women who feel objectified while posing in bikinis on Instagram, white people, black people, Latinos, Jews, Norwegians, kids, parents, teachers, rich people, poor people. Old white men in Hollywood and in positions of power are being outed as misogynists and masturbators and are slowly embracing the victim status trying to foment their comebacks. <laughs> the flip side is women looking for an advantage in the pursuit of success and fame, knowingly going into Harvey Weinstein's hotel room for a business meeting despite all the warning signs that he was a monster. For every little kid who saves hundreds of animals at risk, there are five more who need to bring their pet gerbil on a flight because the furry rat has become the equivalent to Linus's blue blanket. <laughs> but one step more than the church of complaint and unfairness. Currently in America, there are more than half a million people who live every day homeless. There are 6.8 million incarcerated with 2.3 million prisoners being black and 76% for nonviolent crimes. 48 million live without medical insurance despite Obamacare, and 46 million rely on food stamps despite 40 million of them having full or part-time employment. While the parade of victims waltz across the stage of social media and cable television, there are genuine victims of an unjust, capitalistic, and systematically racist and sexist paradigm. For every Me Too victim of sexual harassment, there are three women who've been beaten by husbands and boyfriends, yet refuse to come forward because they don't want to get another bludgeoning. For every white nationalist prevented from speaking at a college campus, there are a thousand schoolchildren with textbooks that date back to the 1970s. With the brilliant, horrifying power of the megaphone provided by the internet comes the race to the bottom to see who can claim to be the most victimized, the least advantaged, the one deserving of an Indigo or Kickstarter or book deal or spot on the CNN panel of yelling morons. All while there are scores of genuine victims too busy trying to survive to get online and join the bitching bandwagon. If America is a nation of heroes, we don't have nearly enough of them. Thank you. ladies and gentlemen, Joe James. Thank you, Don Hall. You are the mint that makes my drunk tingly. <laughs> America is full of heroes. In 1942, John Wayne parachuted out of a B-52 bomber over enemy territory while atop his horse. <laughs> He landed on Normandy Beach and killed 33 Nazis, 28 Japs, 14 Indians, and 8 smelly Frenchmen. <laughs> he 
mowed them all down, armed with nothing but his bare teeth, swinging a steel nutsack. <laughs> In 1982, John Rambo snuck back into Vietnam in the dead of night, machine gunning down hundreds of enemy soldiers and freeing 1,000 American POWs. That included John McCain and Dolly Parton. <laughs> On his way leading them out of the country, he saved a small Vietnamese baby from drowning in a pool of communism. <laughs> he tied the infant to his head with his red bandana and carried it to safety and sweet, sweet freedom. <laughs> that baby grew up to be Ronald Reagan. <laughs> In 2017, Donald Trump ended the Taliban in the first 30 days of his administration <laughs> with a plan that, to this day, only he knows about. He also killed Osama bin Laden by tweeting insults at him. The body was found bleeding out, riddled with spelling and grammatical errors. <laughs> America is full of heroes. We go after the bad guys. We go it alone. Mission accomplished. We win. It's what we do. That's what we've been taught. That's what we've been shown. That's why we spend more on defense spending than the rest of the world spends on health care. While we love the good action, beat them up, kick some ass stories, we know those aren't the real heroes. The average salary for a high school teacher in America is $58,000 a year which sounds really good to me. Uh, except when you consider they deal with overcrowded classrooms, long days that include prepping and grading lessons and tests at home, are expected to support school functions, and have to buy their own supplies. They also must surf the bullshit slung their way by students, parents, administrators, and the taxpayers who don't think they should pay for someone else's education. Sometimes they get to teach. They face it down because they are teachers. They are passionate about making a difference. They're called the bad guys when they go on strike to get modest increases in pay and benefits. They are heroes. Firefighters and police officers storm into situations where they don't know if it's going to be their last day at work or not. They are in high-stress careers overpopulated with assholes. Among them are people who do what they do because they believe in protect and serve. And they often go up against their colleagues, their bosses, politicians, to stay true to their vision. They are heroes. There are people in America who fight every day for those without strength or without voices. There are people who serve others when they can stay at home and binge watch TV shows. Like me. <laughs> they make sure homeless people and elderly have warm blankets and hot meals. They make sure the underprivileged and mistreated have access to legal aid. They are heroes. People who stand up and say no to injustice are heroes. They protect women seeking health care. They march in the streets and on Washington and say no to racism and gun violence. They don't just click like on Facebook. They get off their ass and do something. All those people I just mentioned, though, are a small percentage of our population. The real heroes in America are children. They aren't born racist. They aren't born self-serving assholes. They know the difference between right and wrong because most children have a keen sense of empathy. They have a natural awe and reverence for nature and humanity. They see something wrong, and they want to do something about it now. Now, I got on YouTube, and I looked up some videos, and I could have put a montage of different heroes together for you, but I'm lazy. But I got this one that I want to show a little bit of. Thank <laughs> you. 
and twenty dollars. How many are we bringing up on this coming thing? One hundred. <laughs> well, that's gonna give us one hundred and eleven more dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to hear from you. Ah, hey, stop. You just got to smack it like a bongo. Uh, so that kid was six years old. Six years old. When I was six, my main concerns were eating boogers and peeing my pants. And someday I dreamed of tying my shoes. It was two years away. <laughs> dresses like a superhero. But you can find hundreds of videos like this online. Kids feeding homeless people, kids helping out at hospitals and senior citizen homes. America is full of heroes, real heroes, pint-sized heroes, over 70 million of them. It's our job to give them what they need and get the fuck out of their way. The heartstring, the, the thing. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna actually not talk at all and just show you uh, the Lord of the Flies. <laughs> I counter that shit, but I didn't. So I just went, all right, Sophie, you have the choice between is America based, and this is the definitive, it's decided at this point, is America a nation of victims or heroes? Uh, so I will justify this one. All right. Uh, I work at a school. I'm a front desk lady at an elementary school, and while some children are heroes, most of them are little shits. going on, and the question that is begged is do we fix it, or we just burn it down and start over? So when Don first sent me this assignment for the debate, I immediately thought of the French Revolution, in which I have at least one degree, and at the start of the French Revolution, they attempted to fix the monarchy with a constitution. Uh, they quickly realized that was bullshit, and guillotined anyone remotely resembling royalty. They burnt that shit to the ground, even inventing their own calendar, because they felt that time began with their, re their revolt. Yes. Then I thought I'd discuss something closer to home, so I considered the Great Fire, uh, which gave us two of my favorite aspects of Chicago, the grid and the beach. And you might not consider that the fire was a revolution, uh, but the grid and the beach definitely fixed this otherwise swampy industrial mess of a city. But I don't really want to talk about all those old dead people. I want to talk to you about a much more personal revolution, a revolution of the heart. A revolution against the oppression of poor partner practices that keep even amazing, intelligent, sexy women like myself constantly second guessing their worth. Even with degrees in French history and six plus years experience as a Chicago tour guide, the topic in which I am most truly an expert is bad relationships. <laughs> For the sake of time, we're going to focus on the most recent. <laughs> and to be kind, I won't use his real name. We'll call him Dick. from day one. I found excitement and faith in the fact that these were things we both wanted enough to express them right away. From that day, however, we had to hammer out what that meant to us in a day-to-day -day way. So as we bartered out our non-monogamy, I realized he was more promiscuous than polyamorous. We tried to find a common ground. We tried to fix it. But ladies and gentlemen, and all those in between, let me tell you, it was not worth it. Like so many terrible situations, the only revolt could come with burning it to the ground. Exhibit A. I beg your pardon, I came up here without my beer. We were dating a girl named Erin. 
Thank you, Tom. Such a gent. It's like a stage manager thing. Oh, oh. No. Nope. I'll hold Exhibit A. We were dating a girl named Erin, who was the type of foxy blonde who seemed to have been born in perfect eyeliner and was impeccably made up all the time. We shared sexy photos constantly, which was just his style of flirting. He snapped a quick, sweaty shot of us once while I was doing the dishes, and I asked him to hold off, that we'd send her something more appealing later, but he could not wait. When I found that he had sent it anyway, we had to talk about consent. And he promised never to share photos of me again without my permission. Problem fixed, or so I thought. Months later, we were dating a married couple, and he snuck a shot of my bare ass as I cooked us breakfast. You might be seeing a theme here. I'm eating the dishes. I'm cooking breakfast. And said it to the husband to brag about my cyclist butt. When I found out, I was livid. And he had the balls to defend himself, saying he didn't think I would mind because I looked damn good in that pic, as if that were the point. He apologized profusely, and it was a sexy pic, so I tried to be forgiving and more, and move forward. I needed to be more open, he said, because this is how people flirt and date in the 21st century. Exhibit B. Almost every year, his family went on vacation to New Orleans, one of my most favorite happy places in the whole world. And I didn't really fit in with his boob job mom or his well-manicured family, but I'd never been to New Orleans during Mardi Gras, so I agreed to go with a special request that we go a few days early to have some time alone, something that we'd struggled to share as we dated that couple. He agreed fooling me into thinking I had fixed the problem. And we booked a studio apartment on Decatur for three days before his family showed up. The very first morning, we lay in bed wearing only beads and eating beignets I had snuck out to buy us for breakfast. We talked about what to do with our beautiful day off together. And he brought up a girl vacationing down the street with whom he'd been chatting on, I don't know what app, and proposed that we meet her for a drink and bring her back there for the threesome. Needless to say, I was pissed. He told me I was too much of a prude to be polyamorous. And after that, I was simply going through the motions of our relationship to keep reservations we had and finish our travel plans. Exhibit C. <laughs> Just after we got home, my dad got really, really sick. And when my parents had lost their house on the south side a, a year or so before, it was really early in our relationship, so I could understand why he didn't feel comfortable coming to help me as I spent weeks digging through dad's basement for family heirlooms and sneaking out mountains and mountains of trash and recycling to the alley. But now my dad had a blood clot in his leg and was rushed into emergency surgery from which, we were told, he would most likely not awake. For days after surgery, he was in a near coma between life and death, and each night I begged Dick to come over, to comfort me. As I waited, there's all kinds of comfort. <laughs> to comfort me as I awaited the call that my dad was dead. And despite the fact that I had given his family more than half my vocation, my vacation in New Orleans, and had bit my tongue on his horrible treatment of me so as not to be that bitch who ruined his family's vacation, he told me no. He didn't feel like he knew my family well enough to be around at such a time, and besides, he had a cough. <laughs> and uh, he had to nurse that so he wouldn't miss any more work. For three days, I begged his company, and he refused me. Then on that third day, I found out he'd made a date with the married woman that we were seeing, so I promptly told all three of them to go fuck themselves and block them all from contacting me so I could focus on my family and start eradicating them from my life. <laughs> of course, he didn't respect that fix and used every platform I was on to try to contact me and make his apologies even biking to leave a five-day pass to Lollapalooza on my doorstep to prove how sorry he was, and showing up at a friend's poetry party because he knew I'd be there, even though when we were dating, he had always refused to go to that party. I tried to give him back the pass, but he insisted that I keep it as a peace offering with no strings attached. Yeah, right. Of course there were strings attached. 
as uh, he continued to harass me. So I sold the five-day pass, pocketed those couple hundred bucks, uh, and gathered the few cards I had from him, full of promises to be by my side and to love and to support me always. Promises he would sign with his full signature whenever he wrote me a letter. No pet names, no diminutives, but his legal signature, like a check or uh, uh, some transaction obligation devoid of warmth or love. And as I watched the flames consume his lies, <laughs> I feared my cleansing was still too private and that he wouldn't get the picture. So I took a picture of the burning mementos of his so-called love and unblocked him just long enough to send it to him before blocking him again. And you might think that's cruel or juvenile or irresponsible, but I'm sure that's also what Louis Couture's would say about the guillotine's reign of terror and what the fire captain would say about Mrs. O'Leary forgetting her lantern in the barn with Bessie, so fuck you. Because it finally got our breakup in his thick skull, and finally my revolt was accomplished. I was free from the oppression of that asshole because I had burnt that bad relationship down. Thank you. Yeah! <laughs> Elizabeth Pierre. And now for the counter. Lizzie Williams. Give her a hand. started as a middle schooler when we had to write a paper about one of the presidential candidates. I was the only kid in my Catholic private school eighth grade class to write a paper about Bill Clinton. <laughs> Everyone else chose Bush except for Christina Garza who wrote about Ross Perot probably because she was living in his former house. I didn't really understand why people thought I was weird because I wrote about a Democrat but it was very obvious that they thought it was weird. But this was my upbringing, and I'm sure this gives you an idea of my background, and whatever you're thinking, you're probably right. Catholic, conservative-ish family in Texas, some of them in Oklahoma, talk about that. Uh, Republicans, good. Democrats, bad. Both of my parents went to private schools, and the only black people that I knew growing up were my grandparents' housekeepers. That's very true. For someone like myself, the world was my oyster and nothing could stop me. Not even the LA riots or discrimination against women or minorities because I didn't really even know that they were happening. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's because I was young or where I was living, uh, but mostly because those were issues that my family didn't think we should be bothered with. But today, thanks to social media, you can't escape anything. Did you know about the rapper who won't go down on his wife? Because I do. So the problem right now isn't about fighting a battle. It's which one do you pick? Which social issue do you put your energy into? Which charity do you make a donation to? I want to help, but I don't know where. And the great part is, though, if you want to help, there's always something broken. This country and this planet are amazing, beautiful places that will always be somewhat of a shit show, right? So there will always be something to fix. It's like living in Chicago. Some days I want to punch people in the face for bumping into me with their backpack on the train, or yell at the mayor because I lost a battle with a shitty speed bump and fell off my, back, my bike smashing my face into the concrete. But doesn't walking along the lake on an 80 degree afternoon make the fight worth it? So back to me. I really did want to know more about social issues and how I could help, but I was obviously very sheltered. So for some reason, I decided to question pretty much everything I had learned as a kid. Why do we go to church? My dad said, it's Saturday evening, we should go to church. And remember to meet me outside after communion so we can beat the traffic. Okay. Uh, but I want to know, why do we like President Bush? Why do we not like Democrats? Why do you feel the need to mention the races of people you know who aren't white? Oh, you know my buddy Fred, he's a black guy. Why do women dress so girly in this city and why can't I wear flip-flops every day? I was more concerned about learning about history than finding a boyfriend or a future husband. I wanted to know more about the world and about the country. I wanted to know more about history instead of where JFK was shot and how many times he was shot or how we fought for our independence against Mexico. I mean, get over it. More than half the state is Latino now anyway, so your effort to keep them away is a lost cause. I felt like I was stuck. Our parents, mine at least, were happy where they grew up and lived, Dallas and Tulsa and had no real desire to venture out and explore the rest of the world, let alone the rest of the country, let alone the rest of their states. At separate times, I asked both of my parents what it was like to be alive during the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement, and they both responded, 
I don't know. I didn't really know anything about it. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, I wanted to get out of that world that my parents were born into. And it wasn't that it was a bad place, but it could just use some work. So the first step is even being aware of issues going on right in front of my face. And I kind of also wanted to be knowledgeable about why my grandmother drank vodka every night while we watched Johnny Carson. Carson. <laughs> Which, by the way, I thought she was drinking water until my early 20s. <laughs> so how do I escape this trap and learn more, maybe to try to make the world a better place? And honestly, moving to Chicago was a huge part of that, being in a more integrated city. Not totally integrated, but much more than North Texas. And moving away from my family really allowed me to see their bias, and my own biases, and kind of that my belief system was fucked up. And there were a few things that happened to get me to this realization. One, when I went to college, I had a huge eye-opening experience. I had been lucky enough to go to an amazing private school, but we actually saved a shitload of money because my dad worked there. Uh, so instead of 11000 we paid $3,000. Uh, side note, my high school is now $26,000 a year. Yeah. I, <laughs> I get to college and I'm used to being around rich kids that live in big mansions and drive BMWs and Tahoes and only find out that most of the girls in my dorm had worked since they were about 14 and had paid for their own cars and were even paying for school or were on a scholarship. Now, I was the spoiled brat who had just returned from Europe from a trip that her grandparents gave her as a graduation gift. I mean, I had babysat, but I didn't really know what a hard day's work was like. So I had been pretty spoiled. Isn't it incredibly depressing that I didn't have any friends in high school that had to have a job? <laughs> Some of them still don't have to work because of their rich husbands. I grew up in a bubble, a big old bubble, and it wasn't like I was even aware of people around me that came from other backgrounds. Another thing that happened was the Thanksgiving after 9-11, uh, after this horrible terrorist attack, my grandfather tells everyone at the table to talk about where they were on the morning of 9-11 and how it affected them. Okay, really, I was in my apartment in Fort Worth, probably slipping through morning class. Yes, it's affected us all in some way, but let's try to make it even more about ourselves. But we have no idea what it's really like to suffer, so can I just please eat my turkey? Number three, I visited family in Tulsa about eight years ago when someone mentioned a gas station that was robbed down the street. And the neighborhood my Tulsa family lives in is even more of a bubble. It's like a bubble made of glass and just filled with a bunch of white, narrow-minded people. My uncle mentioned the robber shooter was probably a Mexican or the N-word. Who the fuck are these people and where did I come from? So fixing a broken society has to start small with a tiny seed, like someone such as myself beginning to question what's happening around them, or just even being aware, and also talking to others and understanding their point of view, unless they're white nationalists. But yeah, I mean, where the hell do we even start? Sometimes I scroll through Facebook and I think, Jesus Christ, it's too much. Our president is a fucking idiot. There's so many foster dogs that need homes. There's people It's true. There's people who won't bake cakes for same-sex weddings. It's easier to get a gun than to find my ticket number for my United flight so I, that I just took to Mexico so I can get my miles. I get it, but the thing is you have to find something that you feel really strongly about and just do what you can. There's always people trying to do good in the world. I have a friend in DC who works for the Interna International Justice Mission trying to end child trafficking. Another friend travels to India at least once a year to educate women and young girls about their bodies and safe sex. I try to put a dollar in the jar at every coffee shop I go to or donate money to friends who lost their apartment in a fire. I've run the Chicago Marathon a few times with the charity and donated money to causes like cancer and children's hospitals. You do what you can, and sometimes it might feel like you're, you're not doing enough. And sure, I ran races with charities, but even then, the other people running and the charities themselves were not super welcoming to me or friendly. And sometimes when it comes to making a difference or starting a fight you believe in, you're just on your own. And that's okay. And let's be honest, this country is a constant cycle of breakdown and repair. Good presidents and bad presidents, they come and go. The economy plummets and gradually recovers. So whether you think the system needs to be fixed, there's always someone trying to fix it. You can use so many examples today, whether it's gun control, women's rights, fixing that fucking speed bump, or taking off your backpack on the CTA to make room for other people. There's so many young people that are active in social and political issues, and it makes me so incredibly happy. So be active, do something to help others. Maybe uh, when you see a woman on the CTA being shoved by a guy, don't just sit there and don't just make her feel bad because she pushed that emergency button and delayed your train by five minutes. So I constantly think about my friends, 
relatives and their kids, and I hope so badly that they're teaching them to be good people. And maybe if they're teaching them about religion, sex ed, etc., give those kids a choice of what they want to believe in and let them figure it out for themselves. I wish I would have had that option. So if a girl from Texas can turn from a Catholic to an atheist and somehow develop a Chicago accent and get excited about voting for her alderman on a Tuesday afternoon, I think there's hope for all kids and young adults out there to make some kind of difference. Thank you. All right. From the personal to the personal, do we burn it down or do we fix it? Sophie. Burn it down. Burn it down. She just burn it down. emotional reaction only. Because while we're emotional about victims and heroics, and we're emotional about revolution, we're really emotional about our opinion on clowns. <laughs> and we will have a debate. Clowns, delightful or horrifying. Hi there. I'm John Capal, new writer, nervous, and novice storyteller. Longtime marketing and uh, project management professional unapologetic atheist, and irredeemable recidivist pie whore. <laughs> if you ever want me to go running with you, I'm going to need some motivation. A double Lagavulin 16, neat, yeah. at the finish line, or a clown chasing me with a bloody knife. <laughs> Of course clowns are horrifying. <laughs> it's so completely obvious, I suspect that Rory's reaction to the assignment was, how long that clown have to blow down to draw the easiest assignment of the night? <laughs> but if you ever have attended a Bughouse event, you know that you just can't stand here and declare, I win. You must earn it with logic, clever rhetoric, a handsome smile, <laughs> a sexy outfit. Yes. A brilliant stand-up bit and or a bizarre piece of performance art. Since I offer none of the above, <coughs> I will just have to learn it the old-fashioned way by relentlessly bullshitting you, by shaming your saccharine cuteness, and by mocking your cosmopolitan drink selection. That clowns are horrifying is now a boring Hollywood trope, a trite cliche. We start with our favorite horrifying clown and mass murderer, John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> Moving right into both versions of Stephen King. Beyond that, there are literally thousands of horrifying clown images. Parenthetically, 
pairing long serrated knife with my second favorite food product gives me the willies. Back to Cronhorn. <laughs> Apparently, every children's birthday party includes one or more horny, large-breasted, extremely well-manicured milfs. <laughs> they all have different fences, party balloons, streamers, overstuffed couches, and plenty of space for at least three light stands and two video shooters. <laughs> Nary a single child makes an appearance. <laughs> and if you're a fucking parent who already has kids, when in your fucking life have you not had a child walk in on a sex session? <laughs> if your kids are in the building, they are gonna find you and provide a teachable moment. You would not be shocked by the variety and ranges of noses that end up in all sorts of unusual places, including those that light up and are somehow electrified. The idea of a vibrating nose strapped to your noggin actually sounds like some form of torture. Parenthetically, I'm wondering what kind of crazy glue or harness keeps these appendages in place. Further, you would not be shocked to learn how they collect all those bozo pratfall banana peels, the edible portion of the bananas, is used for all those face flattering cream pies. I am left wondering what does face makeup taste like and how the hell do I clean all the lids? Not to further offend your delicate sensibilities, we will not be talking about furries, <laughs> bronies, <laughs> or cosplay attendees, all of whom qualify as clowns in one form or another. There's a reason why my two favorite descriptive noun pairs are fuckstick and ass clown. <laughs> the pejoratives exist for a reason and they are usually interchangeable. If you've ever researched clowns, you know that this shit really took off for the British in the 1800s. Joining a circus and painting your face white was just another way to rip off a poverty class in merry old England. Digging further back, you know that the Greeks and Romans started this nonsense. Of course, all this was plagiarized by that Tudor P.R. Flack, William Shakespeare. <laughs> That's a really fucking good joke. <laughs> Can I repeat it? Of course, all that was plagiarized by that Tudor P.R. Flack, William Shakespeare. It's a good for telling that joke. <clears throat> a clown is less a king's jester than a vaguely humorous idiot, and this is important. A clown is always visualized as a low-class character dressed in servant's garb. Does this look familiar? <laughs> If the pantomime routines just represented the excessive inability to navigate even the simplest, most straightforward tasks, it would be merely infuriating. Getting into and out of a car. Getting out of an imaginary box. Delivering food. Blowing up a, bit, a balloon. And by the way, that isn't a sword. And those green knobs on the bottom aren't part of the sword. <laughs> or, oh, having sex. Teen dresses a clown as clown and stabs boyfriend during sex. A 19-year-old mother was sentenced to 11 years behind bars after dressing up as a clown and repeatedly stabbing her boyfriend during sexual intercourse. 
The duo were apparently engaging in some sexual fantasy. The victim, who suffers from a fear of clowns, was supposed to be tied up during the sex, but negotiated to have the clown only use a pillow to place over his face as she dressed as a clown. Said the victim, I'm convinced that she planned it. It wasn't personal. Ah. She was going to do it to someone, and it just happened to me. <laughs> Here's the quote. Murder is like a bag of chips. You just can't stop after just one. <laughs> Add face paint, a giant nose, and a goofy wig, big shoes, and an excessively long tie, you're witnessing the unholy marriage of stupidity and let's play dress-up with the creepy old guy down the street that smells funny. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Look like anyone we know. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it takes Americans to really bring jackass to the conversation because we believe in distinctions. The hobo. He wanders around. It works, maybe, but makes a mess of it. You notice this one here at the Great Fire, Circus Fire. He's walking away from the fire with a bucket of water. <laughs> the tramp. He wanders around, but doesn't work. And finally, the bum. He neither wanders around nor works. Well, this sounds like all those fucking Trump voters. Here's some in Charlottesville. Here are some actual clowns that showed up to support supremacist Richard Spencer back in March. Just recently. Oh, boy. And in fact, more clowns who did a concert in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I need to escape mediocrity and stupidity, not embrace it. Parenthetically, there are literally thousands of insane Trump, support, Trump supporters' images to choose from. Why would someone love clowns or hold a foolish, misbegotten belief that they're delightful? Oh, they have skills, you say. If I wanted to see someone ride a donkey, I'd go to City Hall. <laughs> if I wanted to see someone walk a tightrope, I'd watch a Clinton news conference. If I wanted to see someone steal my seat, I'd go to a Cubs game. If I wanted to see some real acrobatic feats, I'd return to the clown, you know, the porn cloud. If I wanted to see someone trip over themselves and turn, turn a bouquet of flowers into a rubber chicken, I'd visit my mom. <laughs> oh, they mock the establishment, you say. Look, I fully support, support subversion and satire in all its forms. But they aren't making fun of the bosses. They're making fun of you. Your desperate scramble for the last kernel of candy corn masked into the ground the last crumb of bread brushed onto the floor. Clowns work for the bosses. Make them laugh for it's their ass. Want to get whacked? Go work for a king or oh, Go work for a king or queen. Oh, they're funny, you say. <laughs> Fuck you, I say. You know who's funny? Bill Hicks, and he's been dead since 1994. <laughs> Clowns are not comedians. They're either taking money out of your wallet to convince you to buy some shit food. McDonald's, anyone? Damn. Or any crap served at a birthday party or a circus. Or they're trying to convince you to believe some stupid shit. There's Roseanne doing the national answer. There's phone news. Or there's Pray that our message of hatred is heard by our dear Lord and give us all your cash. <laughs> or they're trying to convince you to rally around some shit public policy. Let's defund Obamacare. More guns. Oh, they're harmless, you say. Fuck you, you've not been listening, I say. Hey, let's pal around with some pedophiles at the Clown College. I say, <laughs> look, <clears throat> if you have a clown at your kid's birthday party, <laughs> either I'm calling Child Protective Services 
or I want to be the lighting director in your next shoot. There you go, I just want to point out, and you may not know this, but this is Tony from Tony and Tina's wedding. Yeah! I'm not sure. It's a real deal. Ladies and gentlemen, Roy Zacker. Go! So you can 
go watch the game, or you can go out with your wife while the babysitter watches your wretched children. Now, now I, I will fully admit, I don't, have a, I don't have a long presentation on this, but I will fully admit, there are some clowns out there that are fucking scary, okay? Some of those freak the shit out of me, okay? And if I saw them coming at me on a dark street, I would run, and I would hope that I would run faster than you. <laughs> but, but, these terrifying clowns are mainly a subset of the main genre of clowns. Bozo, Cookie, Krusty, Wizzo, these clowns just bring joy. Most clowns are pure of heart. They have nothing but positivity rating out of them. They want to find the child who is sick, who is sad, and they want to make them laugh. They want to make their day a little bit better, even if it's for the detriment of them by looking stupid, not making a lot of money because children's clowns do not make a lot of money. They do it because of the joy of making a child laugh. And there is nothing more pure in this world than a child's laughter. That is truth. That has been proven. That is not fake news. <laughs> and, I know this movie is terrible, but Patch Adams. The, the movie itself is not great. But Robin Williams, he sacrificed his career by putting on a rubber nose and improvising with children to make an hour and a half in the theater seemed tolerable. <laughs> and it's based on a true story. Patch Adams is based on a true story of a, of a doctor who gave his dignity to make dying children laugh. And that is the most important thing in the world. <laughs> now, like I said about terrifying clowns, there is a subset of them from the main clown. Uh, John Wayne Gacy, uh, uh, the clown from It, Donald Trump. <laughs> These are all very well examples of terrifying clowns. But but by, by that sense, if you were a fan of rock and roll, would death metal make you afraid of rock music? Death metal is a subset of rock music. I have heard death metal. It's fucking awful. Okay? It's, it's done by a lot of Norwegian guys who get off on killing the lead singer, cannibalizing them, and wearing his bones as a necklace. That is a true story. But if A equals B and B equals C, then would A equals C? No, it doesn't. It's fucking stupid. Because death metal is stupid. Rock music is fucking awesome. Alright? So, clowns are awesome. Death metal is fucking stupid. But you still like rock music. Okay? You can think a clown is terrifying. I think the clown from It is terrifying. John Wayne Gacy is fucking scary. If, if I was younger and more impressionable, I could have been in that crawl space. But, but, but I wasn't. So, remember that. Terrifying clowns are awful. But clowns overall are rock music, and everybody loves rock music. Now, I'm glad my competitor brought up, you know, the origin of a clown. The clown is, started way back in ancient Greece and then medieval times. Uh, it, it, the word clown comes from the name, uh, from the word cloin. And the loose translation of that is like boorish peasant. All right, these Boorish peasants gave their lives to make these rich elitist assholes feel a little bit better because they had no other choice. And I understand that sucks, okay? But by today's modern uh, metamorphosis of things, the, the clown of now is a stand-up comedian. I know it was debated on, but the stand-up comedian, stand comedian excuse me, is the modern clown of today. They are very boorish. They are very dirty. They don't have a lot of money like the hobo clowns of yore. <laughs> and they give their dignity, their health, 
their pride to sit up here or stand up here to make you people laugh. That's all they want to do. They are the modern clowns. They are making you sick children, all of you. <laughs> they are making you laugh. And if you find clowns terrifying, think of the person behind the clown. It's not the clown. John Wayne Gacy could have dressed up as a cowboy with a six-shooter and, and chaps, and everybody would be up here being afraid of cowboys. It is not the clown that is terrifying. It's fucking people. We are fucking twisted, okay? The clown has nothing to do with it. That is merely the prop in the play. People on a whole are just fucked. We are weird. We are twisted. We are demented. Clowns don't kill people. People kill people. And my final point, my final point, my final point, since clowns are now, our stand-up comedians are now the, the, the clowns of today, I will leave you with this final joke. A... The clown picks up a hooker. <laughs> Takes her into his car. Gives her money. And the hooker starts blowing the clown. She takes him fully in her mouth. Engorged. Looks up at him with his clown penis in her mouth. Looks at him dead in the eyes and says, You taste funny. Bughouse is performed the first Monday of every month. For info, go to literateape.com.